We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. The Prime Minister has shuffled his cabinet, and it looks like Justin Trudeau made it through. Here's Scott Thompson. The cheeky boy. The cheeky boy. Oh, he gets that from, I don't know. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, it's one of those news days where if you're a political junkie, kind of like I am, maybe, if you notice that, uh, it, it's kind of cool, but then um, it, it just becomes exhausting. So we'll try to uh, talk about the cabinet shuffle and, and 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 not bore you and not put you to the brink either. All right. Is that is that a fair enough? Is that a fair? Yeah. OK, we'll accept that. Uh, interesting uh, points before we get to the cabinet shuffle. Canada's population last year grew by one point two million people. Think about that. Canada's population grew by one point two million people. That's a city the size of Ottawa. Think of that. In one year, and we hear about the 500,000, but that doesn't include you know, other cohorts and such that, uh, that come over. So uh, unbelievable when you think about that. And when you also factor in the health care and the housing crisis, um, I'm not sure that, um, that increasing the size of the population and increasing the size of the civil ser- uh, service is how you grow the economy. And that appears, well, no, it's been documented, actually, uh, what the Liberals have done here. So um, and another report from TD Canada saying that, uh, again, uh, Canada's standard of living is falling behind that of uh, our peers and such. And we just have not been productive. And it's uh, we talked about this yesterday, something that needs to uh, obviously bring attention. Uh, I- I'm watching... Uh, the cabinet shuffle today, and it was tough for me. So, anyway, uh, so do you, can you name, this was the other co- comment the pundits were saying that I was watching. It, it's like, can you, can you name a cabinet minister? So, Christia Freeland, can you name anybody else? You could probably name Marco Menachino, uh, simply because of the Bernardo screw up. And oh, yeah, by the way, he's gone, although he's staying representing his. His uh, constituents, uh, and constituents, which is odd. I thought he would be uh, just packing her in, but anyway, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Uh, so here's just stuff I've noticed. I notice when the prime minister comes out, and boy, I I don't know how he could sell this, but he comes out and and he does his chatter about um, uh, whatever he's done. We'll talk about that in a minute. And everybody behind him, especially Christy Freeland, just nodding their heads. They remind me of those dogs that used to be in the back of cars in the old days. They just heads are just all going as if to say, like, if we're all, you know, nodding our heads in unison, it must be right. Of course, he was asked about the prime ministers that were fi- or the ministers that were fired, Lamenti, uh, Injustice and, and Mendicino and such. And, you know, obviously sidestep that. What's he going to do? Uh, throw them under the bus again? Uh, 30 changes, seven new faces. Here's the other thing I noticed. Everybody who came up to speak afterwards used the word economy or economic or economics. It's the new economic team. Christia Freeland, that's the prime minister. Christia Freeland, our, our economic team. Uh, Anita Anand, our strong economic team. And, you know, you think, this is a man that would never mention the word economy. And now it seems it's just peppered throughout all of this as the Conservatives are ahead of the Liberals by 10 points in the polls. Uh, so fascinating how they are trying to completely redirect. Uh, as Pierre, Pierre Polyevre put it, uh, the captain should be going, not the team. It's Justin Trudeau who, 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 sh- who should be uh, shuffled. Going to play you some clips here of the Prime Minister. Uh, this is him talking about... Um, the shuffle. This is a positive step in a moment of consequential impact in the world and in the country. We know times are challenging, but this is the team that is going to be able to continue the hard work, rolling up their sleeves and delivering for Canadians from coast to coast to coast. He said that about the last team right up until late last week. Fascinating. Um, all right. Uh, this is the prime minister talking again about this 
um, this best team. And making sure that we have the best possible team aligned to respond to Canadians' challenges with the Little support soft on the floor there, but also show that optimism, that ambition for getting us through more these salt. consequential times and building needs more a brighter Bring up future that for everyone. That's what Turn we're focused on. We need to continue to put our very best foot forward and work even harder to deliver for Canadians. And having a renewed team uh, with a range of new voices and new skills and experience, new challenges for our strongest ministers to be able to step up and meet this consequential moment in the lives of Canadians. Exhausting. Drink some water, Scott. Oh my God! It's I can I can hear the sweat dripping from your brow. Better? Oh, excuse me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> nice. Oh, I that was that. not only that was not only exhausting to listen to. It was exhausting to tap dance to. And uh, we are where we are. Is changing the team but keeping the same captain enough? Uh, that's the big question moving forward. Big cabinet shuffle today. I'm not sure if this uh, helps or it just draws more attention to the problems at hand because there's no real solutions here. Uh, it's, it's you know, different people. Some say, sh you know, sh shuffling the chairs on the Titanic, it still ends up in the same place. Uh, you know, changes uh, of personnel, but not necessarily changes in direction. Although, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, the word economic or derivative of is, is coming out of the mouths of a lot of ministers. Uh, our strong economic team, our new economic team, uh, uh, economic team, period. Uh, we, we're hearing a lot of that, which you never really heard uh, too much of in the last little while. All right, Andrew Shear is with us, Conservative House Leader, Member of Parliament for Saskatchewan, former leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and here now. Andrew Shear, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're well. I am quite well. Hope you're doing okay as well. I can't wait to ask you what your thoughts are on what we uh, have witnessed all today. Uh, one thing that stood out for me, and I just mentioned that, was the word economy or economic or strong economic team or new economic team. The word economy seemed to be uh, front and center after this shuffle. Well, you know, just because they say it a whole bunch of times doesn't mean anything's going to actually change. Um, the reason why... Canada is in the cost of living crisis that it is. The reason why families are struggling is because after eight years of Justin Trudeau, paychecks don't go as far as they used to. Housing costs have doubled. Crime and chaos are common. And he continues to divide in order to distract from all the things that he's broken. Uh, you know, changing the ministers won't really do anything if the agenda is the same. And that agenda is crafted by Justin Trudeau. So as long as he keeps his job... It doesn't really matter who he puts in other roles. Do you think Canadians are paying much attention to this? I mean, we were joking earlier, how many, you know, how many MPs can you uh, mention? How many cabinet ministers and such? Do you think Canadians are paying attention or, again, um, it's the captain they're looking at? I, I absolutely, I think it's the captain. I, you know, I, I think Canadians are paying attention to what's happening in their real lives. Uh, and when they see their, their electrical bills go up, when they see the cost of gas go up, and they know it's because the carbon tax is uh, the, the, the carbon tax is being tri tripled by this liberal government. When they see their lines of credit get more expensive and their mortgages go up because uh, interest rates have risen to compensate for all the borrowing that Justin Trudeau has done, I think they pay attention in that respect. And I think the biggest takeaway, you know, whether or not the average Canadian can name which minister holds which portfolio, the fact that he fired so many ministers and shuffled like this is a major shuffle. And it's, I, I believe most Canadians will conclude that this is an admission of failure, that uh, the, the, the decisions that Justin Trudeau have, have, have taken has got us to the point where costs, costs, of, costs are rising, uh, paychecks don't go as far as they used to, inflation has taken a big bite out of earning power. And then they see, you know, uh, Christian Freeland still in the economic, port the major economic portfolio's finance minister. Uh, She's the one that was tasked with bringing interest rates down and inflation down. Inflation continues uh, to hurt and interest rates continue to rise. Uh, uh, Mr. Gibo is, is still at environment. It's hmm. his plan to triple the carbon tax, and that is also a driver of inflation. He keeps his job. So as long as Justin Trudeau keeps his job and, 
and uh, and Freeland and Gibor continuing to do what they're doing, I, I think most Canadians will conclude that not, not, nothing's really going to change out of this shuffle. Do you think this is going to last, Andrew, till 2025? Uh, how do you, what do you learn from this? Uh, what do you take from it? I mean, are, is this an election-ready cabinet shuffle, or will it happen again? Uh, how long do you see this going? It's so hard to predict, you know. Uh, it, it, take Mark Mancino, for example. I was, I didn't think that Marco would survive the summer after, uh, you know, he lied about uh, whether or not police uh, forces asked for the Emergencies Act. He lied about which guns were being, uh, which which hunting rifles were being banned. And then, of course, there was the uh, the, the the infamous decision to transfer Paul Bernardo into a medium security facility. Uh, Trudeau stuck with him all the way through and 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 defended him, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's out. So it's really hard to predict with Justin Trudeau. I've I've been in uh, federal politics now for a number of years. You can kind of twist yourself up in knots trying to predict when elections might be and and what what else might happen. I just know for our part in the in the opposition, we're going to continue to promote Pierre Polyev's positive vision for Canada, making sure that Canadians' paychecks go further, that they take home more, they pay less tax, costs come down, interest rates come down, our streets get safer by putting dangerous and repeat offenders behind bars. That's the vision that. Pierre has been taking across the country, and I can tell it's resonating. So uh, whether or not this shuffle happens again in a few months or, or not, um, we're going to keep doing what we're doing, which is showing Canadians that there is a better way. Uh, well, last time Pierre probably ever was on the show, we were talking about uh, his climate plan. It seems that the op- people that are opposing you and your party say they have no plan. They have no plan. Uh, and he explained a bit of that. But what do you say to those that say the Conservatives, they just want to take us backwards? There is no plan here. Well, the thing that I found out is that it's the Liberals that don't have an environmental plan. Uh, after eight years of Justin Trudeau, emissions are up. Costs are going up. We're getting the worst of both worlds. We're paying more for gas, groceries, and home heating. But we're not seeing the environmental benefit that was promised to go along with it. So... At the end of the day, it's a tax plan, not an environmental plan. So that's that's the first thing I say. And 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 you know, head, people nod their heads. They they, they quickly realize that that uh, the carbon tax isn't working. It's only working at making things more expensive. The second thing I say is that we've always had more success in in our in our country when government incentivizes things rather than punishes. So what Pierre talks a lot about is making Canada more attractive to do R and D. Uh, have have the types of incentives that will lead to more innovation. Um, rather than punish seniors on fixed incomes who have to choose between heating and eating, uh, make Canada the type of place where we can incubate these 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 new technologies, these efficiencies that will help bring uh, uh, emissions down. The other thing we have to do as a country, and we must reject Trudeau's approach, which is basically to drive production out of Canada. That, that's basically the effect of the carbon tax, is it makes it much more costly to produce things in Canada. Where does that production go? It goes to China. It goes to other countries that don't have the same environmental standards we do. And we actually, as a, as a planet, we, we, we have more CO2, more emissions, uh, because rather than making more of the things here that we can do efficiently, we drive that production out. So uh, more and more Canadians are realizing that, that, that you know, uh, if China builds two or three more coal-fired electrical plants, that undoes any of the efficiencies that we might uh, make here. So we might as well make the things here that we can more efficiently with clean hydro, with higher environmental standards, and we will reap both the rewards of lower emissions and more jobs and investment here at home. Andrew Shear with us, Conservative House Leader, Member of Parliament for Regina, Saskatchewan, former leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Andrew, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Enjoy the the rest of your summer. Big news today, a massive cabinet shuffle for the Prime Minister. And... uh, We'll be breaking that down over the course of uh, over the course of the afternoon. All right, uh, we're going to bring in Sebastian Delaire, Senior Vice President Canada and Managing Director for Quebec at Ipsos. Uh, interesting survey uh, from Ipsos co- uh, conducted on behalf of the Montreal Economic Institute found that less than a quarter, twenty three percent of Canadians think the federal government is properly spending our money on the most important issues facing the country and also found that 64% of people think the government is doing an ineffective job of allocating those funds to address the important problems of the day. To find out more, Sebastian Delaire, Senior Vice President Canada and Managing Director for uh, Quebec at Ipsos here now. Sebastian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Hope you're well as well. 
So what stood out? I mean, we're going to go through this uh, and break it down a little bit in just a second. But what stood out for you uh, with all of this as as uh, someone who 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 researches all of this? What what, st- what stands out for you? Well, the, the results of the poll seem to be in line with a lot of what we've been hearing over the past few months, which is that it's becoming harder for the government to, to, to drag some of the baggage that they've, they've been building over the years. You know, they've enjoyed benefit of the doubt throughout their term because it's been a strange term you know, for, for, for government. In fact, for all, you know, the, all of their tenure in power, there's been a lot of strange things. And of course, a one in a hundred years, in, in 100 years, sorry, uh, pandemic was <laughs> kind of the, the key to all of this. But it, it it seems like after enjoying a little bit of benefit of the doubt on the extra spending, uh, higher taxes, and then other issues, it, it's becoming heavier and heavier to carry for the government. And what we're seeing is that roughly two-thirds, as you alluded to, that number, two-thirds, like 64%, 65%, 67% of negative opinions on most questions we asked relative to spending, taxes, inflation, that's a pretty consistent number. So you have a large majority of Canadians who are disgruntled at this point. It's interesting when we head into an election campaign, there's like these top five issues that are most important to Canadians, and then you go through each political party and see if they're connecting uh, with voters or such. Do you get the impression that this government is on the same page as the average Canadian? I mean, it's, after such a so many years in power, no matter who, who's in power, we've seen it with the previous uh, governments as well, uh, with previous governments as well. It it becomes harder to say that everything that has gone wrong over the past few years, and we know in Canada many things have gone wrong, some of which created by uh, you know the, the party in power, but some of which completely out of their control as well, is start, it's starting to be more difficult to say this is not our fault. It's the fault of someone else before, or we don't have much control over what's happening. So this the multitude of crises that have happened. So we talk about the pandemic, of course, but we also think about inflation, cost of living, housing challenges. Um, all of this are piling up to create a very negative narrative right now. And then for the government, and you talked earlier about the change in cabinet, the reshuffling, that's also part of an attempt at changing the channel, changing the discussion. So the longer you've been in power, the harder it is to do. So we'll see what, what happens over the next few months. But there's a lot of work to do if you're the liberal government and you want to really change a discussion over the state of the country, but also the job that you've been doing at trying to fix all those different problems that we're facing. Uh, less than a quarter, 23% of Canadians think the federal government is properly, is, is properly spending money on the most important issues facing the country. Uh, 23%, that's, you know, that's uh, 77 that don't think so. Um, what do we derive from that? The, the real key thing that has hit Canadians hard uh, recently is the higher cost of living. Uh, of course, for, for some Canadians, it's been linked to lack of access to proper housing. But for most Canadians, it's just everyday life has been impacted. So the, we've changed the way we we consume certain products. We change the way we do groceries. We've adapted our travel schedule. Our vacations may not be as expensive as we thought they might be. Uh, going into the summer. So there are a lot of changes, and those things really weigh on people because they, they, they affect our lives on a daily basis. And, of course, I'm talking about, in general, some of these adjustments are not that that hard to make, but a lot of Canadians have to make very tough choices on a daily basis. You know, do I pay for this? But then I've, I struggle to, to make ends meet on, on other aspects. So it's it's very difficult for for many Canadians right now, and I think this is what we're saying. So so when when you ask a question, are the funds allocated in the right places? When people think of their daily lives, mm. the answer is no, because I I feel like I pay too much in taxes. I feel like I'm not getting enough back. My wallet's always empty. So these are the things that really affect voters and that drive votes uh, eventually. 
Uh, more than six in ten think government spending is fueling inflation, causing inflation. Uh, that seems pretty complex for the average Canadian, but it's it, it, it appears that we're starting to get this. Yeah, it's a message that has been pushed uh, by a lot of different uh, groups over the past uh, the past year or so, starting with with the federal conservatives who have been pushing that issue very hard, and it seems to be trickling down. Uh, into popular uh, beliefs about about what's happening right now, and 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 again, it's it, it's just kind of two thirds, roughly, of Canadians who, who believe this, which is perfectly aligned with with views about total amounts of spending, accountability, and transparency. Uh, so it's a very consistent uh, group of of Canadians who, who are not very happy right now. Obviously, a, a cabinet shuffle today. Uh, what do you think if you were to do a survey a month from now? What do you think the feedback would be like? Cabinet re- reshuffling often doesn't have any impact in the short term. What it allows to do is it changes who the communicators are. It changes how various government policies and successes over time are communicated to people, are presented to Canadians, so they may have an effect. Uh, it, it changes the, the, the conversation in the media for a few days when it happens. But for ordinary Canadians, especially in the middle of this very hot and strange summer, probably will not garner a lot of attention at this time. So, so the real question will be, is it successful in changing the narrative and the discussions in two, three, four months down the road. But in the short term, it probably won't have much of an impact. Sebastian Delaire with us, Senior Vice President, Canada and Managing Director for Quebec at Ipsos uh, on their latest, uh, what people think of our Canadian politicians. Sebastian, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You too. Cabinet shuffle today. Uh, Can you name a member of the cabinet? Probably can't now. Maybe one. Christy Freeland? Probably could have mentioned uh, Marco Medicino because of the Bernardo thing, but he's out. Uh, the uh, Prime Minister has shuffled the Cabinet, a large shuffle, about 30 changes and seven new faces to talk more. Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, and here now. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well, thank you. Your thoughts on what we've seen, uh, Henry, and, and your impression after it's over? Well, obviously, this is a very big uh, change that he's had there, uh, uh, you know, between uh, bringing in seven new people at this stage and getting rid of some senior people and uh, and moving other people around to different portfolios, we're just reorganizing. It's just there's just a lot of changes that we don't normally see nearly this month much. But you know, he is uh, you know trailing in the public opinion polls. He's got to make sure that somehow he has a government that looks like it's managing the economy and. That's what I think he put together a, a cabinet that he thinks will do that. Uh, does this help our Canadians paying attention to this, or does this draw attention to something that they probably may have tuned out for the summer? Does it help or not help? Well, I, I think uh, over time it'll probably help. Now, he has a lot of time. We're not going to have an election for two, two more years. So the important thing is he wants to make sure he's got people in there who look competent, who aren't getting into you know, uh, scandals or things they can't handle. They have to look, look like they're doing their job. And plus, he has to have people in there that are going to basically uh, get us on an even keel with, in terms of the economy. Basically, I think to get down to 2% uh, inflation, that seems to be where the economy generally works well. We're not that far away from it now, but we've got to keep on that. And he's got to have uh, control of the economy. He used his levers to have that. So, uh, you know, so over the next two years, people will look back and say, oh, that was working pretty well and have them forget about everything that went on before today. Uh, Many have said that he should be shuffled, not the cabinet. There was a a time when we were talking about whether he was even going to run in the next election. That is, uh, I guess, a moot point at all at this this time. But would the liberals be better off uh, bringing another leader in, whether it's a Christia Freeland, whoever? I don't know. I don't uh, I mean, I I, I'm not sure who would, uh, you know, you know, who I could guarantee would do better than him. 
the next time around. And we often know that, uh, you know, when you get to this point, uh, if you can, you know, basically keep your, your incumbent going for your political party and win an election, that's the best thing to do. Because bringing in a new person, you know, when you're in power for about eight to ten years, uh, usually people say, oh, uh, the, the party in power is changing, so we probably should change the political party that, ha- that forms mm. the government. I think it's much too risky. I don't see who would uh, really, you know, be able to uh, outshine him uh, over the next two years. But uh, I, I think that he's the best they got, I think, right now. Um, some will say the PM is guilty of a lot of the things that the MPs were that he fired, whether it's just lack of communication, left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing, all that sort of thing. Does this draw attention to that? Uh, again, does in a normally sleepy summer, does this, oh, yeah, they're, oh, yeah, they're shuffling this. We're looking at them now. Well, I think, uh, I think, some, I think people might understand that, you know, sometimes people, there's some people who basically get old and tired. I mean, first of all, the, all this, the shuffle and the new people make it a younger cabinet. So we had some people who are pretty long there, you know, pretty long in the tooth. And uh, so, you know, so the, he got ri- he's getting rid of some of the older ones. Uh, some of them aren't so old, but they just didn't manage their portfolios very well, and people are always criticizing them. Uh, but but it's a younger cabinet, and as he emphasized over and over, he's he's put new energy into the cabinet, and I think he can point that out in terms of you know the younger people that he brought in. the The danger is, of course, is that when you bring in these new people. There, there may be one or two of them may not really work out. We've seen that in the past when he began, even when he began his uh, first term, where he had some young people in that he really liked, and they just didn't know. They just didn't do a yeah. good job, and they had to be re- replaced. Now, the thing is, he could have a minor shuffle a year from now. That would be a year before the election for maybe if he has one or two of them that aren't haven't worked out the way he hoped, then he, he could bring in maybe get rid of them and maybe bring in a couple of uh, people who've had more experience and plug, plug the holes in and then go forward in the last year with a, with a pretty sound cabinet. So it's a, you know, so we, you, you, you hope that most of those young people are going to work out, but they may not. And, but it's like a, you know, it's like a sports team, a baseball team. I mean, every year you got to bring in some new people who are coming in from the minor leagues to really, you know, give a little more life to your to your your team <laughs> uh conservatives ahead uh this week uh 10 points uh your thoughts there i you know i think the canadian people probably in their view is and this is not a, 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 to be unexpected eight years with the same party wouldn't I, there a lot of you're going to have a bunch of people who's yeah. going to say let's let's have a new party it's always better to you know get rid of you know let people be in there for eight years or so and then Get somebody else. Don't let anybody stay there too long because they're tired. They'll start making the same mistakes and everything. But the problem is, is the leader of the of the conservative party is really not the type of person they want. I mean, I think the person they'd really would really run, you know, with the public uh, if they were there is Aaron O'Toole. Aaron yeah. <laughs> O'Toole unfortunately went four two years too early. Yeah. He, he, he's, they want, I think what people would like to have is a moderate conservative. And the problem, you know, the problem with the, you know, their, their current leader is he's, he's, you know, he has a sharp tongue. He comes across, you know, having some, those really sharp edges. Yeah. And I just think he makes people uncomfortable. So people would like to have a conservative government. But I don't think when the election comes, they're really going to feel very comfortable with the leader. So, I mean, like he's tried to tra- change himself and try to make himself yeah. the softer person. Whether he's ever really going to be able to do that, I don't know. Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about the cabinet shuffle. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, same to you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Sad news today to hear that Sinead O'Connor has passed away at the age of 56. Controversial political activist, uh, Irish singer, and of course, biggest hit, uh, Nothing Compares to You, the Prince song. 
uh, and Emperor's New Clothes. Let's bring in Eric Elber, uh, Eric Elper, music publicist and commentator, and worked with Sinead O'Connor a few times over the years. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really bad day. I, I, it's a sad day, I think, for anybody that grew up listening to music from, I think, the time that she released her first album, The Lion and the Cobra, back in 1990. Um, what a ride she took us on, not only musically, but politically and socially. Um, there was certainly never a dull moment when uh, when you were talking about her, that's for sure. How did, what was your relationship? How, obviously, you were in the music business for several years. Uh, tell us some stories. Give us some insight. Yeah, you know, I worked with her for a number of years, starting off with a theology album back in 2007. And um, she did a number of shows in the in the Toronto area. So we got to hang out quite a bit. And actually, the last time I spoke to her was about six months ago when she called me um, in the middle of the night, our time, uh, mm. normal time for her. Um, but she was calling me from her hospital room that she put herself in um, after just the absolute devastation and loss of her of her 17 year old son who committed suicide uh, about uh, a year ago to this day um and um she was wonderful to be with i ha- i got to say like she was funny she was humorous she got a lot of the things that were going on she was very well aware of who she was and her history um and we talked a lot about those early days of of standing up for women's rights standing up for child abuse standing up for the mistreatment of Everybody from rap artists to the marginalized, um, what was going on with the Catholic Church at that time and still to this day. Uh, and what happened after she tore up that picture of Pope John Paul II. On I Saturday remember watching that. I remember watching that live, yeah. Eric, and it was bizarre. It was it was stunning. Um, I, I don't think people truly realize, unless you were around that time, what an absolute pushing a boulder of your career off of a cliff was from the outside an idiotic move from her perspective. It was the smartest and, Hmm. and best move she could have made because she just couldn't handle it. And she knew that. And she was talking about that a lot is that when you start to sell 15 million albums and you are a woman and you look like her and you talk like her and you are absolutely just not breaking and challenging those traditional gender and music norms, but you are destroying it as it happens. Um, it's a lot for anybody to take. You know, she was in her early 20s and already really sensitive to to things. And this that just kind of um, wow, what a what a moment still. And I got to say, she was right. And she was right all along. It, and it, I remember the reaction to the crowd, too. And, you, know, yeah, you just didn't know how to respond to it. It sounds like you were quite close to her. Um, I wasn't close to her in in the manner of like family or friend, but and trust me, it was really truly bizarre that that she actually picked up the phone and called that those during those moments um, earlier this year. But it, it was mostly, um, I I really truly don't know why. You know, we were just mm. talking about stuff, talking about her family, talking about, and and she mentioned you know jokingly that you know she just wanted to just pack up and move to 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 Toronto and Canada um, and just get away from it all. But I think this was somebody who not only um, she didn't court controversy, but she just didn't fit in. Um, And, uh, and it, 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 it kind of cut, it it cut really deep to her. Um, But, you know, more, most of all those albums and those mute, that music going from jazz to pop, to rock, to rap, to funk, to reggae Mm -hmm. was astonishing for anybody to do. Um, And, and and is still one of the, the great artists. I, 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 hands down, she, she was probably and is probably my favorite artist of that whole era still to this day, because she truly was an artist who spoke from her truth and didn't care about whether or not it was going to get played on the radio or have a gold album at the end of it all. Um, what do we know of her passing? We know very, very little. Um, the family have come out in the last hour and asked for privacy. They did not give a cause of death. Um, she has remained pretty silent for her in the last number of months. Um, this time 
uh, uh, sometime last year, around the uh, just just before her her son passed away, um, she announced the North American tour or was going to be, and then as quickly as that announcement happened, uh, she canceled that tour, left social media, only to come back a few weeks later. So we don't know that much about it. Um, I'm I don't want to speculate, but I think a lot of people may may already have the cause of death already in their minds. I just don't I just don't want to you know yeah. cause any rumors eric my condolences uh, i had no idea that you had that sort of relationship with her and and boy uh, i'm sure you'll cherish that for the rest of your life what an, yeah, what an intimate I did, relationship i did back then too yeah it was a it was a, a wild experience um uh, you, you want to hear a really quick funny story sure go ahead quick so, so uh, uh, we were grabbing a bite to eat right across from Massey Hall at this diner, and um, I made reservations. Uh, I, I didn't make reservations for it, and the place was jammed, and I said to the maitre d', and Sinead O'Connor was right behind me, um, but kind of unnoticeable. And I said to the maitre d', um, you know, I, I, do you have a table for two? I know it's really last minute, um, but, you know, I've got Sinead O'Connor that is kind of hungry before she goes to the show. And the maitre d' said, oh, I don't like Sinead O'Connor. And <laughs> Sinead O'Connor pop, popped her head up. And said, that's okay. There are times when I don't like myself either. And you better oh. believe that we got the best table in the house. Oh, man. What a story. I'm getting chills. Eric Elper yeah. with us. We got to hear more of those stories. Eric Elper, music publicist and commentator, speaking on the passing of Sinead O'Connor. Eric, be well. Thanks so much for the stories. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, cabinet shuffle going on today, in case you haven't heard. Uh, and and uh, was it 30 changes, seven new faces, um, and the word economy being used a lot, which is hilarious because I think we heard it more today than we've heard in the last uh, uh, several years. But uh, obviously, that is uh, the attention of this new cabinet, but also uh, some shuffling going on that many are questioning. One, Anita Annan's uh, previous position as national, or sorry, Minister of National Defense, she now moves to the Treasury Board. Bill Blair uh, taking over Minister of National Defense, uh, which is odd because many thought that Bill Blair might be ushered out along with uh, Marco Mendicino. To talk more about all of this, Richard Schmuka is with us, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute with an expertise in Canadian and American foreign and defense policy and is with us now richard thank you for the time i hope you're well i am thanks for having me your thoughts of anita Anand's new position do you do you think she's happy today well there's been a bit of scuttlebutt that she wasn't super happy at defense uh and that she may have been asking for this change so perhaps she is but i i think it's probably the biggest story that isn't being reported maybe the biggest change of, of them all i mean Mendicino and Lametti leaving. Those are those are stories partly because they haven't performed well and their their roles are have not been perceived to perform well, I should say. Whereas Anand was seen as being extremely effective and she was really well regarded within the military. She uh, after, especially coming after uh, Harjit Sajan, who had not again performed well either. She had taken on the uh, the Department of National Defense at a difficult time and had started making some significant changes. and And I think there's a lot of people in Department of National Defense and the military writ large that are that are quite unhappy uh, with this turn of events. If she was making ground, why would she want to bail? Because she was facing a pretty hard slot. I mean, we don't know. I should say yeah, uh, yeah. to be to be perfectly, you know, like we we're not too sure uh, why. But what we do know is that she has been pushing quite a few policies that are not well liked within the Liberal cabinet, even though they're really necessary. Um, Defense needs more money, like desperately needs more money. Yeah. There's there's big ticket items that have not been uh, that ha that need to be replaced. Uh, certainly, the submarines are a big problem, are a big issue. There's a desperately needed NORAD modernization, which the United States really wants to see go well, and and needs planning. It needs sort of secured funding that has not gone through, or significant parts of it haven't gone through. The really what what really comes down to is the defense policy update, which is a a sort of rehash of the twenty or uh, sorry a rewriting of the twenty seventeen defense policy white paper called Strong, Secure, and Engage. And this was supposed to be done early this spring, uh, and we now know that it wasn't even before this uh, this shuffle. It wasn't going to happen until later this summer, if not the fall. 
now there's questions where not's going to happen at all. And, and if you're always pushing and you're getting no support for your positions, being a minister, it's a tough time. And perhaps she didn't want to be there. So, uh, so from there to the treasury, is that a promotion demotion? Certainly it's an easier position, uh, given what, what it may seem like an easier position, uh, than being at, uh, at defense, uh, right now, because again, she's faced significant challenges trying to get anything done at defense. Uh, and whereas treasury, your role is pretty well defined and there's some natural allies. I, I know Christian Freeland has been, uh, trying to put some fiscal discipline into this government. Or, and right there, and then you have one person, a strong voice with you that's that's basically pushing the same direction as you. Whereas in defense, it seems like she had almost no sort of support other than herself uh, in that position. Uh, Bill Blair, in many thought he would get shuffled out. Uh, why him? Uh, I mean, I guess he has a, I believe he has a Toronto writing. Uh, I mean, that's a possibility. It's tough to say. We don't, uh, it's this one, this one. Is somewhat of a head scratcher. Uh, Maybe that Anand was too effective or too much of a strident voice, and PMO didn't want her there. It's we don't know, but certainly there are people who are not happy with this. And as you said, like he was, if he's being talked about being shuffled out, and then she's he's put into one of the most important roles in government, national Hmm. defense. That's. You know, that's not a great sign. You know, I, I, the optics of that aren't great. So clearly, uh, Anita Anand has a very strong skill set. And as you said, made progress in, on a very difficult file with defense. Will her skills be accurately used in, in the Treasury? Absolutely. I, I think she how she was regarded defense was very much she read her files. She knew what she was talking about. She she really got into it and put a lot of work into what she was doing. And defense in some ways is, is a bit like Treasury Board in the sense that you you cover a large amount of distance. Uh, well, actually, you cover a large distance by travel, but certainly in sort of governmental sort of responsibilities. So, you know, you're talking about every single area you have the power to sort of look at the, the sort of spending side. And having a broad range and having a good sort of sense and understanding of the dynamics of each file, whether it be fisheries to healthcare spending to defense or whatever, I think we'll regard her well. So everything that we've heard about her at defense was that she she was very, very articulate, very, very smart about the issues uh, and and could could sort of speak and and have a, a very strong sense of governing on these issues and and treasury board in some ways is very similar in that sense uh sounds like she should still be there so we really don't know if she wanted out of this portfolio or she was just too good or too persistent on a file that the government didn't deem a priority is that accurate it could be both i I mean it could be both that, that she made strong points on the fact that you know we need more defense spending we are uh, we're critically deficient in certain areas. I, I mean, the fact that we've had the chief of defense staff say that we have to have an operational pause because we are understaffed, under-resourced in so many areas and, and sort of really reduce our, our footprint. She can make take that argument and consistently push that and, and effectively, and it, and it causes problems internally. So I, I think her she, she, could, she could be seen as being too much of uh, too effective there and could be used somewhere else and, and also re, uh, reduce an irritant or a, a, a sort of uh, some sort of internal sort of dissent within the within the sort of cabinet discussions. Hmm, they uh, m- many. Uh, it was not long ago, several months ago, people were talking about whether the prime minister would continue on rather than a cabinet shuffle. Uh, many have talked of, about Christia Freeland, whether she could be prime minister or such. Is, is Anita Anand in those same circles? Could she be prime minister one day? I think there's been talk that she's shown herself well, and this even before she came into defense, that she had some real ability at, at sort of uh, at governing, at, at sort of managing whether or not she has sort of, you know, it's either politics or policy, right? right. Uh, whether she has the sort of political chops in order to sort of manage her image, manage the party's image, especially as we see in polling today, it's, it may not be doing, uh, the Liberal Party may not be doing that well. 
uh, nationally, uh, whether she can kind of play in those, play in that sort of area and sort of rehabilitate them. Uh, it's tough to say, but certainly within government, she's, she's seen as being a, a, a quite a effective minister, perhaps one of the best that they have at this time. Richard Smuka with us, senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute, commenting on the cabinet shuffle and many uh, questioning Anita Annan's uh, position out as national uh, defense minister and into the treasury. Richard, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. All right, uh, uh, the, the uh, Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, continues as Minister of Finance. We have a new uh, Minister of the Treasury Board, that being Anita Anand. A lot of people questioning that move uh, simply because her skills were so uh, great in the uh, Department of Defense. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. Your your thoughts on what you see here from a business perspective, uh, and, and let's talk about Anita Anand in the in the Treasury Board. Will her skills be used there? Um, Ms. Anand, I believe, is one of the most competent people in the government of, in the cabinet of the Governor of Canada. Um, I've lived in Ottawa all my life, as you know, and uh, the business. My sort of joke about Ottawa is uh, Toronto. The business of Toronto is making money. The business of Ottawa is spending money, government money. That's what we do. We are the government town, the government city. So everyone in Ottawa, directly or indirectly, pays very great attention to what's going on in the government because that's who we are. And there is a widespread view, I believe, in my opinion, regardless of your partisan affiliation or what you think philosophically, that Ms. Anand, a former professor from University of Calgary, I believe, um, is very competent. Um, and there, this is widely shared, this view, by many different people from different walks of life. And so, uh, although we in Ottawa think the Treasury Board Secretariat is very, very important because it is deemed at law under the Parliament of Canada as the employer of the public service. And we are a public service town, and, and it is the largest employer by far and away in Ottawa. So, yes, it's an important portfolio to us in Ottawa. However, in the larger picture for the country, for all Canadians, it is not considered one of the heavyweight portfolios. It's an inside the Beltway story. It's an inside Ottawa story. It's not a national issue. So she went from uh, doing a very good job cleaning up the messes in national defense where there were serious problems and widely considered by many in the media and the punditry to be doing a very good job. And she was, I think, and there's quite a few people who think she got demoted. And there was no reason to demote her. She so what what is what is the reasoning here, Ian? Um, uh, some people had said that you know she didn't really want defense, uh, but that being said, she did such a great job. Why would you move her? Um, all I can do is quote Machiavelli, and who wrote about this, and he said, "Don't let uh, you know in politics. Don't let uh, as the person at the top. Remember, he was writing his book uh, as advice for the leader, the prince." The, the person at the top. And he said, be very careful of people that are very competent under you are ambitious uh, and who are ambitious under you because they may replace you one day. Did he move so, her out of the way? I, uh, you asked me what I think, and I can't think of any other reason. Nobody can suggest she was not competent. Nobody can say, well, she messed up on the job. She did not. And then one can debate, and Mr. Trudeau's spinning it as saying, oh, Treasury Board is really important. Well, I would suggest to you, if you went out to any Canadian across Canada, outside of Ottawa, and said, do you know what the Treasury Board is? And they would look at you with a blank stare, not because they're not smart, they are, they are, but most people don't have a clue what the Treasury Board does, because it's an inside Ottawa institution. It's a department that handles the inside Ottawa. It manages the public service of whom the majority of public servants in all Canada work in one city called the National what? Capital Region. And that's why it's an inside Ottawa story. So there's no professional reason for, let's be blunt, demoting her. Now, some so say what, that she really wasn't demoted, but I think she was. What about the, uh, I've heard suggested that, you know, she knows that defense needs money. She was asking defense, she was asking the government for money on defense. And obviously this isn't a priority for them. And that became an irritant. Is that accurate? Do you think? Uh, 
You know, the, remember, it's the prime minister that makes the decisions. There may be yeah. – you always have enemies in Ottawa. Every cabinet minister uh, has enemies. Uh, there's always people that want your job. But there's only one person that makes the decision on a cabinet shuffle, and that's the prime minister of Canada. And that person uh, presumably wants to have the best people in all the portfolios to maximize his or her chance of being reelected in the next election. And so, again, I come back to her competence, her widely recommend uh, uh, perceived competence and it's very real so why would you move someone so competent in such a huge portfolio that had so much so many problems to the treasury board yeah. where the issues have been have come and gone the strike is over the damage was already done um i understand why the treasury board minister uh from ottawa by the way was was dumped because she messed up. She mm. experienced and was responsible for the largest strike in the public service in Canada's history. Okay, so you get rid of that person. I get that. But why you would take somebody like with the skill sets of Ms. Anand and and put her into this now that the problems have been solved, the collective agreements were solved across the yeah. public service. There's no issues. There's no big files to be worked on in that job. So it's not going to use her her skills. So I, I, that's why I said it. I can only see it as the, she was seen as perhaps. And there was a report today in the paper that PMO warned her for uh, to not be so uh, publicly ambitious. Oh my! Doctor Ian Lee with his associate professor of the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, talking about the cabinet shuffle from his perspective. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You might remember uh, last Tuesday we had Jagmeet Singh, leader of the MDP, on the show while he was visiting Hamilton. He shared some insights onto the housing crisis uh, and ways to address it. Some are concerned about the plans laid out by the NDP. That includes the Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute. The article in the Globe and Mail is the NDP's solution to Canada's housing crisis would do more harm than good. To talk more about this, Mike Moffitt, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute and Assistant Professor of Business, Economics, Public Policy Group, Ivy Business School, Western University, and here now. Mike, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you for having me. So it, it seemed, and at first, Jagmeet Singh was talking a, a couple of different things. One was a renting policy and, and bringing co-ops so uh, the renters had a piece of the building or what have you. Uh, and then we're hearing, in, for example, in your article as well, that some sort of relief for uh, those having problems with mortgage, some sort of subsidy uh, to help those having issues with a mortgage. Why wouldn't this work? Well, it, it would work in the sense that it would, uh, you know, give people money and uh, lower their bills. But when when Singh went to Windsor, he gave the example of uh, a couple who had purchased a home for over seven hundred thousand uh, dollars, and you know now are seeing their their mortgage increase and and having to pay uh, an extra seventeen hundred bucks a month. And I can relate to that. I, I bought a home uh, in twenty seventeen. My mortgage just renewed, and I'm paying a lot more than I than I have to, but uh, or than I than I used to. But you know, the idea that uh, we should be subsidizing relatively well off uh, homeowners when uh, you know renters are feeling the pinch, homeless are feeling the pinch. You know, it's just a very regressive idea. And secondly, if we're going to bring some sanity to the housing market, I think the last thing that we should do be doing is giving. Uh, again, wealthy homeowners more money to reinvest in in, in housing or uh, to have people live in homes that may be too large for them. That uh, you know we might need to have some people right size their homes. So this is just you know another policy in a suite of policy we've had for decades that have just thrown more and more money into a limited supply of housing. Just making the whole system more expensive for everyone. You hit the nail on the head, Mike. We've talked about this several times. It's simple supply and demand. You don't have enough. We haven't been building for 5, 10, 15, 20 years prior to the pandemic. Of course, we're going to be in a shortage now, especially with increased in population. Um, it, it seems that the Jugmeet Singh's policies are really directed to a very small niche. Uh, whether they work or not, or good ideas or bad, they don't seem to affect 
um, uh, everyone. Like this, the housing situation is a crisis. It's it's affecting every category, every demographic, everything. And, and if middle class people can't get into a home, then how are those trying to join the middle class, to pull a phrase? Uh, how are they going to be able to afford it? It seems that we're creating a problem and then coming up with policies to help people get through that problem as opposed to solving the problem. <laughs> To actually solving the problem. Yeah, exactly. And and you nailed it, that that our fundamental problem in this country, particularly in, in southern Ontario, is that we have too much housing demand and not enough housing supply. So the absolute last thing we should be doing is is subsidizing demand, you know, throwing more fuel in the fire. We need to figure out how to build more supply, you know, particularly on the rental side. It's rents that are going up. 20 to 25 percent on new leases across southern Ontario, particularly in college and university towns like Hamilton. So that's where we need to go. And, you know, I get it. I get that this is going to be attractive to some people. You know, my heart of hearts, I would be one of the people that helped here. I wouldn't mind getting a check in the mail, but that doesn't mean it's uh, it's good public policy to, to help out folks like me when there's so many other people that are suffering. And, and frankly, supporting people like me is just going to make this situation worse. I've talked to many uh, academics, many experts who say, you know, we can't spend time blaming because I would ask the question, how do we get here? And we know how we get here. We didn't do anything for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years until we own up to what we have done and the mistakes we have made. Can we convince the public that we're actually moving forward? I couldn't believe in the last provincial election, all four major political parties, including the Greens, wanted to build like a million or a million and a half homes. We have never heard that from some parties. Yeah, and it's it's a great target, and I think it's absolutely needed. And and to put this into context, uh, you know, they wanted to build 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years, which is which is what we need. Uh, we haven't even built 750,000 homes uh, in in Ontario in any 10 year period since about 1973 to 1982. So that was actually the 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 run of the television show Mash. You know, so basically <laughs> what we're going to have to do is, is do uh, something that we haven't uh, done since they were making new episodes of MASH and then double it in the same amount of time. So the targets are absolutely needed. But what's missing is the actual plan or the actual policy to, to make that happen. Are we seeing two trains collide here? Uh, environmentalists and uh, against uh, urban sprawl. Therefore, you can't build that way. Nimbyism the other way in the extreme can't build in. I mean, when are these two going to finally come together and, and and I guess maybe find a consensus in the center? Yeah, I think we have to. And the, and there's a, a sort of third train of sort of population growth, right, that we need to keep uh, having, you know, international student enrollments and, and other, uh, you know, other groups, uh, you know, seeing the seeing these population increases. Well, you, you know, you either have to, you know, build up or build out if you're going to house all these people. And there's just been horror stories. I, you know, I've just read one today of of four international students uh, living under a bridge just because the the housing system is is so broke. So absolutely, something has to give it at some point. And I think we're all going to have to come together, come up with a plan. And, you know, nobody's going to like every single element of it. You know, there's going to be too much height for some people. There's going to be uh, too much ex expansion of urban growth boundary for, for others. Uh, you know, maybe our colleges aren't going to get as many students as they'd like. But let's come together, find something we can all live with, uh, because the, this current situation is just simply untenable. Only got a few seconds left. When did build become a bad word? I don't know. I wish I knew. We need to we need to build more. So let's do you and I and everyone else. Let's do what we can uh, to, to make it a, a positive statement. Mike Moffitt, Senior Director of Policy Innovation, Smart Prosperity Institute, Assistant Professor Business, uh, IB Business School, Western University. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Oh, thank you for having me. Take care. Uh, you've no doubt heard that uh, tragic story about a Toronto principal who took his own life, uh, allegedly due to uh, went to a a uh, professional development session back in 20, uh, 2021 and referred to as a racist, a white supremacist uh, during this 
uh, consulting, I guess, uh, which is odd. I guess you combat bullying by bullying. Uh, the lawsuit alleges the staff did not stop the harassment, which was contrary to the school board's policy of protecting the well-being of its employees. Let's bring in Tasha Carradine, principal and navigator, author of The Right Path, her latest in the National Post. Principal's death shows that schools are focusing on the wrong things. Tasha, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, thanks, Scott. Before we get to this tragic story, Tasha, I mean, just off the top of my head, I was thinking um, I can remember the York Regional School Board during the Queen's funeral, which is a very historic teaching moment, uh, sent out memos. Nobody's to talk about the Queen's funeral. And the reason being because it traumatizes the kids. Uh, the Catholic board there having issues with pride. Peel being taken over by the province because there was issues there. And, of course, uh, here in this uh, neck of the woods, the Halton teacher with the prosthetic breasts, the, this, you know, bomb threats, whatever, and it still continued. What is going on with at least a few of these school boards? It, it appears they're out of control. Well, there's been, there have been a lot of factors um, explaining, I think, or contributing to the uptick in violence, the uptick in people having, you know, various positions on all the social issues you're talking about. Um, and I think that it's it's kind of come to a head, especially around the violence piece, um, you know, objecting to curriculum, objecting to events and this kind of thing is one piece of it. I think I'll, I'll, there's a division within the parents and how they feel about that. But I think the violence is something that we really have to address the most. Um, and that is something that is plaguing all school boards. This was the most violent year in the TDSB since it's been collecting data in 2000. Over 300 students were uh, you know, suspended for various things. Teachers feel unsafe. Peel region is no different. There are lots of, of, of complaints by teachers and other things about this. Um, but it is something that, that that is, to me, a crying priority. And the second priority is just that scores of, of kids are going down in terms of educational achievement on international tests that we've seen in the last, well, since since 2000, actually, too. We've had a 14% decline or 14-point decline in Canada um, in reading scores alone, and math and science are dropping, too. So we have to address those issues. Those, to me, are the priorities of a school system. A lot of the other stuff that we've been talking about, um, you know, whether it's equity issues or others, uh, they're not as priority if they don't help the first two. And there's no evidence they do. In fact, the more of this stuff that we've been getting, DEI and other things, it seems that things are getting worse and worse. So we, I think, have to focus on student achievement because kids feel better about themselves when they do well. They're less likely to act out if they achieve. And we should focus on making all kids get an, an equal chance to do well in school. Uh, you talked about the violence. Um, what's worse, the violence in schools or the fact that there would be police liaisons in the school? I don't know. It just seems like an odd discussion to have. Well, I mean, thankfully, it's not as bad as the United States, um, you know, where they have uh, metal detectors and they have a, a much, mm -hmm. a much stronger, actually, they do have a police presence in some schools. But I think that, you know, the the school resource officer issue has been contentious. They were removed from schools because of allegations of racism. Um, but if you ask a lot of people, a lot of students, even from different uh, groups in, in uh, schools, different ethnic groups, different racial groups, some said, hey, I actually felt safer when the, when the resource officer was there. I had someone to go to. In many cases, they made an effort to integrate into the school community. So I don't think it was uniform across all schools. I think this is something, again, it's like this cookie cutter idea, one size fits all. It's, you know, one solution for all schools in a school board. That may not be the case. It can be very individual. So I think this is part of the issue is that we tend to just generalize. I think we shouldn't do that. And I think that um, around the violence piece, yeah, that starts, it doesn't start in high school either. It has to start in, in elementary mm. school in terms of teaching a culture of respect in schools. And we're not doing that. Uh, let's talk about the case of this principal and, and abuse. It, it, it sounded like he was abused for not agreeing with the consultant um, or, or even challenging what they said. Where will this go? Uh, will this be brushed under the rug? Um, I hope not. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that Richard touched in his career as a principal. He was thousands of students that went through his his schools. He was with the TDSB for 24 years. Many of his friends, including myself, who just feel extremely saddened and, and horrified at what's happened. And he already had a, he already won his case at the WSIB. They did find that he was bullied, that there was harassment, as you pointed out, um, you know, it was inappropriate uh, what was happened to him in those two sessions. And he was pursuing, he wanted an apology. His lawsuit asked for compensation, yes, but also an apology from the school board because he felt that he'd given his life to the school board and they didn't stand up for him. And that's what hurt him the most um, in talking with him. It, it came up time and time again. 
And um, no, Minister Lecce has said that he wants to review how these contracts for DEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion education, are granted. He says to bring options about professional training to reform it, strengthen accountability on school boards so this never happens again. We're going to hold him to that because that is the least of it. That's one piece of this puzzle, but that has to happen because if there is to be training of any kind like this, it should not result in this kind of outcome. It should be inclusive and not exclude people and not stigmatize them and, and scapegoat them simply in his case because of his race. We know uh, school boards, how they're elected, school trustees, what have you. Um, and, and many have said this is the lowest level of municipal politics. You want to get in. This is a good path to get in. But it doesn't seem that there's any sort of barrier or any sort of threshold for people to take over this position. And it may be a starting position for politics, but it's a very sensitive situation because it involves our kids. Should there be some sort of standard here? Well, there's two schools of thought on that. This is one school of thought, which is you don't need school boards. And Quebec has gone that way. They got rid of their school boards. They created councils where parents are represented, where teachers are represented, um, where the government, like, you know, administrators are represented too. I mean, it it's a different model. They decided that for that exact reason, people, these positions are not well paid. People run for them often just as a stepping stone to other office. Some people are well-meaning, 100%, and some people, well, maybe mm-hmm. less or less informed. And it, you know, to, to spend the amount of time you have to to really give good governance, the amount of issues the TDSB deals with is a huge crushing load. And to ask that of trustees for the for the money that they get is kind of ridiculous, frankly. Um, but I think that, you know, they rely on staff. And this is part of the issue is the TDSB staff are really the ones who set the agenda. And the, and the trustees, I don't think, really have fully the bandwidth to fully dig into everything they do. And we know that this year alone, I mean, there was a report that was falsified through chat GPT produced by staff. Um, there have been all sorts of other situations where staff give information to trustees that's not complete, that has an has an agenda. And agendas around specialized schools, for example, we've had discussions of staff that we've had on, you know, transcripts of where they say, well, the goal is to really have everyone in their homeschool. And, you know, get if you have to get rid of specialized schools, so be it. Because that will mean that, you know, all those schools that we're worried about, because guess what, there's hardly any kids in some of them, they won't be closed down. That means jobs will be kept. It's hmm. you have to be there for the children. And there's the sense that the TDSB right now, there's so many problems. It's not. And Richard's case is just, you know, unfortunately, the tipping point, I think, for a lot of people to say enough and ask the minister to really act and clean up, you know, as much as he can this situation, put some guidelines in, make sure this never happens again. Tasha Keridan with us, principal, navigator, and author of The Right Path, the latest in the National Post. Principal's death shows that schools are focusing on the wrong things. Tasha, great piece. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word this one comes from ba in regard to trudeau's cabinet shuffle you can put lipstick on a pig but it's still a pig oink oink up to the trough endless money from the hard-working taxpayers will keep those greedy federal liberals fed yikes keep right except to pass 